All right. I am I am very excited to talk to you guys about this particular section of scripture. I mean, we're entering into the climax of everything. I mean, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the life of Jesus, it, it, it's climactically present right here at the Passover and at the crucifixion of Christ, all these wonderful, powerful things. But I think there's a problem I want to address before we dig into it. And the problem is this. We casually read through the Bible and we tend to miss out on the deep, deep layers of significance and meaning that are in the text of scripture because the Bible is brilliantly written. God inspired it. He is the original genius and it's written in brilliant ways that does take some like mining to really get all the blessings and the benefits out of it. It's kind of like if you take a sponge and you just sort of hold a sponge over over you and it's full of water, it'll drip out automatically. And that's like the Bible, like it, the goodness just drips out. But if you squeeze the sponge, you get more. Yeah, And it, the harder you squeeze it, the more you get. And this is kind of what we're doing with the scripture now. We're going into the Passover. We're going into the final meal, this climactic moment in the gospel of Mark, where Jesus is, is going to bring together so many threads of different things that have been going on. So he's about to die. Everything that he's going to do here matters. It's deeply connected to the Old Testament. And we're going to mine it for all of its details. For the start, though, by just reading the passage itself. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 12, where we're going to start. And this is part 59 in the Gospel of Mark, the series, the Mark series, I call it. My name's not Mark, <laughs> some of you guys. But, um, but the series is the Gospel of Mark. And we're in our 59th lesson in this series as we continue verse by verse. The entire playlist, if you're interested, if you want to go with me through the whole book of Mark, there's a link in the video description down below to the entire Mark playlist. And it's all there. Everything's for free, as always. Now, Mark 12, uh, Mark 14, 12, it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, just to remind you, we're just going to read through a whole section all the way through verse 26. Just load the text in your mind. Get the details. Start to, Just start to remember what happens, the order of events, all that kind of thing. So they're like, where shall we prepare the Passover? Verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there. Prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went in, went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one another uh, and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
And when they had sung a hymn, they went out, here we are, to the Mount of Olives. And that's where, that's as far as we're going to get today, which is actually covering a larger portion of scripture than I often do in the studies recently. But um, I like to take things in sensical sections, and this is one sensical section. So the 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 elements we're seeing in the passage here is uh, they're going to prepare the Passover, and we get a lot of details. I mean, Mark is crammed for space. He's putting years of ministry into 16 chapters. He's crammed for space. And uh, short chapters, Bible chapters, they're, they're not very long. But he gives us all these details about the preparation of the Passover, the discussion, the guy with the water jar, the house and all this. Then there's the prediction of his betrayal. And you got to ask, why is Jesus telling them at this climactic event, one of them is going to betray him? Like, why Why does he even bother saying anything? What's, what's the reason why they go around going, is it I? Is it I? What's up here? And then we're going to talk also about deep layers of meaning uh, in this important festival and connections to Old Testament stuff. And um, then your head will explode with goodness. All right. So the first thing we're going to ask is this. In Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, we're just going to read this section again and ask yourself this question. Is this a supernatural moment where Jesus just sort of knows if you go up to someone you see and you say this thing, he'll be he'll suddenly just go and take you to a place and there'll happen to be a room prepared? Is it a supernatural moment or is it a clever plot? where Jesus intentionally designed for this person to be there and had a plan with the homeowner ahead of time. So let's read through the passage and then we'll kind of, I'll build my case for why I changed my mind on this passage from the first time I read it back in the day. So it says here, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there. Prepare for us. Then, of course, they go and it's just as he says. This is an interesting thing. When I first read this, I remember, you know, I don't remember a whole lot from when I'd first come to Christ and a lot of my experiences. But I remember like this vague memory of reading the Gospels then as a teenager and coming across this passage. And I just assumed there was just some sort of divine supernatural thing going on here where God just kind of like, maybe the Holy Spirit just spoke to the guy who's carrying the water jar. Maybe the Holy Spirit just kind of spoke to the homeowner and this is why they prepared the upper room. But now I have a different opinion. I think as we look at the passage carefully and, and we realize something's going on here that's very specific, it looks like a meticulous plan that Jesus had with the homeowner and that he didn't tell the disciples and he deliberately kept them in the dark. And then it starts to take a different context when you look at it overall in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and let me explain. I'll walk you through it. First off, it, the disciples did not know. They did not know what, what, where the Passover was going to be celebrated. This is kind of a big deal, right? They're supposed to celebrate Passover. And they're like, where are we going to do this at? It was, they were deliberately, I think, deliberately kept in the dark as to the location of the Passover. Why? Because if you read Mark 14... Judas has already decided to betray Jesus and he's now looking for an opportunity to turn him over, like when he's not in front of the crowds, when he's in private, to turn him over to the the guard of the high priests. And the Passover would be a perfect opportunity to do that. It happens in the Garden of Gethsemane just after this meal, right? Because Judas knew they would be in the garden, but he didn't know and none of the disciples knew where the Passover would take place. So this seems to have been a deliberate way in which Jesus was delaying his betrayal. He, 
He wants to be betrayed, okay? I mean, not like he's going to enjoy this, but it's it's part of the plan. It's the agenda. He's going to be betrayed. He'll be crucified. This is, this is the whole plan. The Son of Man must be crucified, Jesus says. But it's very important, and this is the message, it's very important that this Passover happens first. This moment, this meal, this breaking of the bread, the things Jesus says, the interaction that happens is super, super important for us to get the right understanding of the gospel, for us to get the right theology from Jesus. He wants to make sure this meal happens and that his betrayal doesn't happen before the meal. So he keeps the disciples in the dark. He sends out just two. Were they, were they two of the twelve? Possibly they were two of the 12. It doesn't say, it just says two of his disciples. Um, so that's possible they were of the 12. That may be the case. Jesus tends to send people out in pairs. He does this frequently. He generally sends disciples out in twos. Doesn't mean you can never go anywhere alone, but I think it's an interesting principle that they go out in pairs. I think probably the hardest missionary work is a guy that goes out all alone on a mission trip. <laughs> I think that we should try to have at least one brother, one sister who's with you uh, as you travel on these journeys. So, um, yeah, so Judas was going to betray him. That's why the location's unknown. They just look for a guy who's carrying a pitcher of water. Now, this, to our eyes, actually, think I've, if, I, if I remember right, I heard somebody kind of mocking the Bible, like, okay, so there's a guy carrying, carrying water. That's, what, that's the sign. The sign is a guy carrying water. Like, they carry water all the time back then. This isn't really a sign to look for. So this, sometimes our criticisms of the Bible result from our ignorance of the actual historical background of the Bible. This would be one of those times. It was really not normal for men to carry pitchers of water, right? This was normally the woman's thing. This is the task that in their culture, the woman would generally do. Now you might think that's oppressive or something like, I think you're just, you're, you're, you're missing the point. The typical woman's thing is to carry water. Men, when they went out, they would normally carry like a skin of water just for their personal use while they're laboring. And the women were getting the water for like cooking or for other purposes. That was normal a normal thing. So when they went and they find a man carrying a jar of water, that was not normal. They would know this was a particular like setup. There's, this seems like a setup. It seems deliberate. This guy carrying water, he's waiting there, I think for the disciples and the guy that owns the home. If you read the text carefully, it looks like the guy that owns the home had sent his servant out there to just sit there with the water waiting for the disciples to spot him. He may have been there for a couple hours. He may have been, who knows how long he was waiting. So then he leads them to the house. So this is this is um, a plot. This is a plan. The, the the there's a passphrase, right? When the disciples see see the owner, they go. The teacher says, "Where's my guest room in which I may eat Passover with my disciples?" Notice they don't identify Jesus by name. The teacher says, "This seems to me to be a result of the very tense environment where there are people who want to kill Jesus and they want to find him when he's away from his crowd of supporters and a Passover meal." when he's away from a massive crowd, is a perfect opportunity to take him. But he's not going to let that happen yet. It's going to happen in the garden because God has a lot of symbolism and theology he wants to teach us through this meal. And I, I think it's exciting stuff, actually. So the place, when they go there, the place is already prepared, right? The, the, they say, you know, where's the guest room where I meet, eat? And he shows them a large room already furnished and prepared. Then they're just going to prepare the food. The disciples are going to like make sure there's the right amount of food and all that kind of stuff. But the homeowner prepared the room. So that's an interesting thing. The place is already prepared. I'm just saying Jesus at some point when he's visiting Jerusalem and he went to Jerusalem multiple times, he arranges with this guy, hey, I'm going to send some disciples, send a guy with a water jar. They're going to say this, you're going to say this, prepare a room for us, and then we'll come to meet you. So these details are very important. Um, now, why, why? Now, it's interesting that Jesus does this, okay? I'm interested in anything Jesus does, but why bother giving space to it in the Gospel of Mark? 
Like, why bother telling us about it? This is a good question to ask because the, there's a the theology we're getting in the Gospel of Mark. And when he includes certain things, doesn't include others, that's because we're to not miss out on these details. So there's a lot of times where Jesus cleverly avoided capture. In fact, that was the normal thing. Here's a lesson for us, application for our lives. Jesus generally avoided being captured. He often like would perhaps dip out of a crowd quickly. They would avoid certain areas. He would. He even told the disciples, if they're not receiving you, leave the area, flee from there. Uh, running from persecution is a good idea. That's, that's what I'm going to suggest here, generally speaking. And it's true that I want to, I mean, it's really heavy on my heart as a Christian, and I'm sure it's on yours too, that, that you'd be willing to suffer for Christ that you'd be willing to go forward and suffer and even die for his name if you if it was required of you. But it's not healthy and smart to try to suffer for Christ, like to try to put yourself in a position where you're suffering deliberately so that you could feel like you're honoring God by being, you know, being being in pain or being in suffering for his name. It's entirely appropriate for us to flee and run unless of course I think that leading of the spirit is to say go forward, stand up, fear not proclaim these truths. Um, now, in other words, the, the balance is this. Jesus never stopped preaching truth, but he would hide from those who were trying to kill him. And I think that's our balance, right? I never stopped saying the name of Christ. I never stopped saying he's the way, the truth, and the life, or that you need Jesus in your life. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to like dodge a bottle that's thrown at my head, or I'm not going to like flee from one location to another. So the message is uncompromised, but we use wisdom in it. But, but, Jesus didn't avoid suffering entirely. Uh, he walked forward to the cross effectively. He puts himself in the garden there deliberately so that he can be betrayed. And there he stays with every temptation in his heart to flee and to run as he's sweating great drops of blood. And there he goes forward into that suffering. So what it does tell us then is it it, it, it brings our focus and narrows it down to this meal, this Passover meal, this, this dinner they're going to have together, that this is very, very important. It's so important that Jesus goes through all these these contortions, you know, you know, working a plot and a plan where the disciples don't know where it's going to be, all this stuff, just to make sure the meal happens. This is meticulous. This is important. Everything should now say what happens next is really important. That's what I think we get out of the next out of the verses uh, twelve through fifteen. What happens next is very important. Now, let me also point out something that people criticize Mark. Um, uh, some more more of the liberal bent are going to criticize the gospel of Mark because in Mark, in the story of Mark, I don't know if you've noticed this, in the 16 chapters, you only have one account of Jesus visiting Jerusalem, right? So he's in, he's in Galilee, he goes up over to Tiberias, you know, he comes back to Galilee, he ends up in Jerusalem. Uh, there are those who say that Mark is presenting Jesus as if he's only got one year or less than a year of ministry happening and that from the time of his baptism until his crucifixion, he only was Galilee, Tiberias, back to Galilee, into Jerusalem. That's the whole story. Now, other gospels present Jesus as visiting Jerusalem multiple times and having a ministry that lasted years, right? Three years approximately, um, but not eight months or six months or one year. The pushback I'm going to suggest here is it should seem obvious to you guys, right? Like as you read Mark, you're going, just because it says Jesus went to, to Jerusalem, and it talks about it once. It doesn't mean he only ever went once. I mean, Jesus probably went to Jerusalem many dozens of times because you went there every year as a Jew. It was just assumed. Mark only mentions one. That's true. That doesn't mean there was only one. We know Mark is cramming large amounts of data into small spaces. It's, it's, it's assuming far too much 
to suggest that this one trip is the only trip that Jesus took. Um, I'll add to that, there's subtle hints that Jesus had more familiarity with the area of Jerusalem than if this was his first trip there. Jesus seems to have plotted with this man. He owns this home and Jesus has plotted and planned with him at some point. Jesus has associations in Bethany, right? There's, there's people that know him there. He's known in this quadrant. And if he'd spent all his time in Jerusalem, how is he so, or in Galilee, and this was his only trip to Jerusalem, how is he so well known in Jerusalem from people who live there, not just people who were traveling there for Passover? So again, I think this is another case of skeptics sometimes having a really high bar of proof for the Bible and a really low bar of proof for their own skepticisms. And this is why to them the Bible looks so silly because there's no there's no bar of proof. There's no high evidential cost for them to confirm their skepticisms only, only to confirm things they don't believe. All right, verse 16, and uh, we continue in Mark here. As, and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Uh, let me just mention real quick, side note, on the Passover, and I, f- I forgot to do this, but I will do it after the stream is over. I have a study on how Jesus fulfilled the Passover. The Passover is a huge, very, very important event in the scriptures and in the yearly calendar of the Jews. They have this, this Passover festival, and it's very symbolic, and it's the birth of the nation. That, like if I could summarize what Passover is about, it's about the birth of the nation of Israel. They're in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians. God delivers them from slavery. And he does so through finally the event of the Passover where they, they offer these lambs, they put the blood upon their doorposts and the angel of God comes and the angel that's destroying, killing the firstborn passes over their homes. And this is so symbolic. There's so many layers of symbolism here that I have a whole video on the topic. And that's what I'm going to link below in the video description. And if I can remember, I'll put a a card up as well uh, for YouTube. If you're there, it should pop up over here. The idea, the reason why I'm going to link that and not talk about it is because there's so many layers. It would turn this into a two and a half hour Bible study, which some of you would enjoy, but (laughs) I've already taught it. So I'm just going to link it up there. And I'm going to move on. I'm not going to deal with how Jesus fulfilled the Passover in every element. I'm going to deal with what Mark focuses on in Mark 14. If you want to know more, I really encourage you to check out that study. It's exciting. It's mind-blowing. There's just so many deliberate pictures and symbolism going on there with the Passover. So this is the Passover meal. This is that thing that's going on. Verse 17, we read on. uh, When it was evening, when it was evening, he... And uh, he came with the 12. So they all show up. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. This, another pause, let's deal with another like criticism. I I just, you know, I've heard so many criticisms against the Bible. It's like, and this will happen to you if you're, if you do this a lot, you you look into these things a lot, you'll start to read the Bible and you'll be like, oh yeah, they hate that part. Oh, they criticize that part. (laughs) It just starts popping out to you. One of the things that I've heard people say occasionally uh, not super often, is that this is this is um, questionable, that Jesus is reclining at the table. And in John in particular, the Gospel of John, we have a record of Jesus recli- uh, reclining at the table and John laying against him. And the King James Version in particular says something about like John was uh, laying against his bosom or something like that. Of course, the word means something very different in, you know, 400 years ago than it does today. But I just want to acknowledge something for you guys. This is actually very historically accurate. 
it was not normal for them to, to eat reclining, to eat while sort of sitting really low and reclined and leaning on an arm or, or even leaning up against your buddy who was next to you. That was not normal, but it was done in the, the high society meals or it was done in the very special meals. So I might get dressed up and put a tie on to go to a really nice restaurant with my wife. They would, at these very nice, special ceremonial meals, they would eat reclining. Possibly because it was meant to be a longer meal. It was meant to be uh, storytelling and all this stuff happens during the Passover meal. But the reason why I say all this is not only is it cool that it's historically accurate that they would recline at table for this special particular meal. We confirm this through other sources. But it's also a push against a particular theology. There are those who want to look for anywhere in the Bible where they can try to sexualize the Bible. And relationships in the Bible. So one is, say, David and Jonathan. People, David says of Jonathan, like, your love was to me better than the love of women. And they're like, they had a homosexual relationship, right? This is the teaching that sometimes people put on the scripture there. Um, or in this case, Jesus and John in their relationship. So in the gospel of John, he's called the, God, the disciple Jesus loved. And here he's he's leaning against Jesus, right? Or really, more accurately, he leans, leans against him to ask him a private question that nobody else will hear, which is different. But this stuff is definitely wrong. Like this, this is just trying, some trying to look for places to put homosexuality into the text of scripture because they have a modern agenda they want to read into the text of the Bible. And we can, uh, we can dismiss that and move on. All right. As they were eating, reclining at the table, Jesus says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me, one who's eating with me. Notice the way Jesus says it. He says, truly, I say to you, we tend to skip. This is in our casual reading. This is one of the things we'll just skip right past. We won't really notice that Jesus is saying this. Um, this is not normal. That the, People don't talk this way back then. They don't say, I mean, even nowadays, no one's like, truly, I say to you. Like no one says that, right? But back then, even they didn't say it. The, the closest parallel there is to this kind of language, to saying like, amen, I say to you, um, amen, that, that that would be the word he's using, you know, not in Greek there, or not in English, excuse me. Um, but when he says this, the closest parallel is the Old Testament, where it says that God is God speaks truth. He speaks truly. So if it, and Mark does this a lot. Mark has these subtle allusions to the Old Testament. He's very interested in in giving us in, under the inspiration of the Spirit. When I say Mark. I don't mean not not Jesus or not God inspiring it. But but Mark's very interested in giving us like these these little allusions to the Old Testament, connections between his writing and the Old Testament. So this is one of those. And long story short, what it's doing is Jesus, when he says things like this, it's like he's saying, I'm teaching you the word of God. I mean, that that's the authority he's teaching with. It's when Jesus taught like this, that they responded by going, who is this man that teaches with such authority? Now, many preachers and teachers have, have suggested that it wasn't Jesus's words that were authority. It was like his demeanor and I've heard those talk about Jesus, like he must have been like a, 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 a very loud and very like ironclad kind of preacher where you, and maybe he was, I'm not saying he wasn't. What I'm suggesting is when they say he teaches with authority, that doesn't mean that he was like loud. That's not the same thing. Um, one of the things that may be referring to is the way Jesus would say things like, truly I say to you, and then he would have his own saying, this is not normal. He's claiming some kind of authority with his words. But what blows me away is the thing that he declares. Like of all the things he's going to declare, truly I say to you, right? He doesn't say like, blessed are the merciful. He says, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. 
he talks about it like it's scripture. Like he's like, it's, it, this is going to happen. This has to happen. This must happen. And that's the lesson. That's the reason why we get the truly I say to you is to realize this is so important. The betrayal of Christ is incredibly important. He must be betrayed. He must be crucified. This doesn't remove the guilt of those who do these things to him. But it's important in the plan of God that this takes place or else we will, we will be lost. We will be lost. It's as important as our salvation that these things take place. Jesus' wording though, I, I said to you, this is an allusion to the Old Testament, right? But the wording here, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. That's also an allusion to the Old Testament. And the passage most people would agree it's talking about is Psalm 41 verse 9. This is where it says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, let's talk a little bit about fulfilled prophecy. Um, when I was young, I thought fulfilled prophecy was, uh, when I was young, I'm, I'm, I'm an old grandpa now, so, um, not a grandpa, but, um, but you know, young is, young is all relative. To me, young was like 20, okay? So when I was younger, when I was like 20, I thought fulfilled prophecy was always what I'll call uh, direct prophecy, direct fulfillment, or like a one-to-one -one kind of thing where God's like, this will happen, and then this happens. And there is, that is one kind of fulfilled prophecy. But frequently, the Bible uses the idea of fulfilled prophecy in a number of other ways. They'll use prophecy in a typological sense. Now, if you're new to this idea, let me just briefly explain. Typology is where it's, it's, it's like, um, think of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of, of Narnia. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia where he, he, he has a, a lion named Aslan. And lion, it, the lion represents Jesus. This is very deliberate and very obvious. And the, one, of his, one of his followers, one of his human followers, uh, commits a sin. And then according to the law, this follower has to be killed. But Aslan goes in his place to die in his place. And they cut off his mane, symbolizing how Jesus gave, has beard plucked out, but also gave up his glory and set aside his glory. And then he dies. But then the very law that required his death had a deeper law. This is C.S. Lewis's writing. So this, I'm not, not quoting scripture here. Um, that required that it, because an innocent one had died for the guilty, that it it broke and and released people from that that law. The very law itself has has been removed now. And so then he comes back to life. Aslan raises. Now this is a deliberate allegory, right? Like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is a very purposeful allegory about Jesus. What I'm going to suggest is God does something kind of similar with a lot of the Old Testament. It's not, I wouldn't just call it allegory because we all know Chronicles of Narnia never happened in reality. But God does this with real people stories. I mean, C.S. Lewis has to make up stories. God does it with real lives. David is a real person and his life becomes a picture of the way Jesus will be. This is why Jesus is called the son of David. And so when David writes in Psalm 41 that my, my close friend whom I trusted, he lifted up his, his heel against me. He rebelled, he, he betrayed me, right? I ate bread with him. This is about David. But David, his very life is about Jesus. And so David is himself, himself a very strong type or picture, living human being whose life God used to be a picture, an example, a prototype of what Christ would look like. And God does this over and over with people. He does it with Moses and he does it with Jonah and he does it with David and he does it with Isaiah and he does it with Ezekiel and he does it with Jephthah and he, I mean, he does it with Gideon and he just keeps doing it over and over again with different people in the Bible. He does it with Abraham and he does it with Isaac. He keeps doing this over and over again. And that's one of my most exciting things to study. If you haven't seen it, I really recommend you guys check out 
the Jesus in the Old Testament series that I've got online. I'll put a link down below to that as well. Why not? It, the typology is amazing. So this is this is where Jesus alludes to a story about David, Psalm 41.9, about lifting the heel against me. And it's it's a fulfillment of scripture, but not the way you're thinking. Where it's like God goes, you know, the Messiah will come and he will suffer and die and he will rise again. That would be like a direct prediction. Instead, it's more typological. David went through this and it's recorded because it's a sample of what Messiah will go through. Right? It's, it's, it's a picture and fulfillment. So um, I mentioned that because there's many liberal theologians who will suggest that what Jesus is doing and what Mark is doing, recording his words here, is just abusing the Old Testament. And I think that that's a very shallow and... I'm going to say kind of ignorant perspective to have on the Old Testament. It misses out that there's so much more to the scripture than just one-to-one prophecies directed. This will happen and it happens. God uses the very lives of people to be pictures. And, and if you doubt me on this, watch my series, Jesus in the Old Testament. But let me add to, add to it this. When Moses is going to die, he's going to leave them. He tells them, God will raise up to you a prophet like me. I mean, he directly, here's a direct prophecy. The direct prophecy is there will be a future prophet and he'll be like me, like Moses. And then we have Jesus being so much like Moses in so many different ways. There's direct prophecy telling us that typological prophecy is a real thing. If we're going to take the Bible as God's word, we need to acknowledge that God uses real people's lives as as if he was C.S. Lewis writing stories to be pictures of Christ. And it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Um <coughs> Okay, as we read on, here we are, Mark chapter 14, verse 19. Let's read on. So I, I hope I hope that that dispels the idea that they're just abusing the Old Testament here. No, 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 this is typology. And if you see it that way, you recognize how Psalm 41 is, is, is important here. Um, they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? Okay, so he said, one of you is going to betray me. And he alludes to Psalm 41. And they're like... Is it I? Is it I? Um, oh, wait, did I skip something there? No, um, we're good. All right, <laughs> just making sure. Um, and uh, they say, is it I? Surely not I. Uh, the, the Depending on your translation here, oh, I think I went to the ESV. So actually, that's kind of good that I did that. It'll give you guys a chance to be reminded that there's different ways of translating things. So in ASB, they write, surely not, they say, surely not I. English, uh, the English Standard Version, ESV, they ask it slightly different. Is it I? Um, the only thing they're doing is the NASB is probably recording more more um, directly the phrase. Surely it's not me, but it's a question. That's why there's a question mark there. The ESV is trying to make this probably easier for us to get because we, we don't normally ask rhetorical questions quite like that in English. So they make it a little more clear. Is it I? Um, anyway, little Bible translation moment for us. Now, um, verse 20, Jesus responds and he answers, uh, even though they're not one by one, they're going around the room. Notice how weird this moment was, right? They're, Jesus is like, they're eating this great, important meal. And he's like, one of you is going to betray me. And then they go around the room one at a time. Is it, is it I, is it I, is it I, this was a very weird moment. This was an awkward moment. This was a strange moment. This was a confusing moment for the disciples. And I, I wonder what it felt like for Judas who was sitting there and it was him. And he knew he was planning to betray Christ. Um, trying to just still fit in and weird, weird, weird moment. Verse 20, and he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl. So he didn't publicly declare to them who it was. It seems in the gospel of John, he privately told John a little bit more data and John may, may have just kept it to himself because Jesus obviously didn't want them to know which one. 
For the Son of Man goes, uh, is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he'd never been born. Let's talk first, before we talk about this whole never been born thing that really gets my interest, as it probably does yours. Um, what does it mean, as it is written? The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. This is probably Isaiah 53 that Jesus is talking about. I, I mean, you could say he's talking about Psalm 41 and the typology of David, and there's, there's definitely connections there. But there are clear connections to Isaiah 53 in Jesus's words in this passage. We'll get to more of it uh, as we talk. But not only that, Jesus has already used Isaiah 53 as a, as a passage that he alludes to when he talks about his death. When he's predicted earlier in Mark, um, the Son of Man's going to be betrayed. He'll, he's going to suffer many things. Be crucified, rise. He's going to um, suffer for many. He'll be an offering for many. He uses these terms that connect to Isaiah 53. I think Isaiah 53 gives us the bedrock for what Jesus means when he says, as it is written of him. So keep that in mind. We'll talk more about that as we go. Um, but now let me ask another kind of strange question, perhaps, but I like asking strange questions in the text of scripture, as long as we're trying to be faithful to the word when we get our answers. Why did Jesus tell them about the betrayal? Like, why, why bother telling them at all? And I, I think the answer is this. I mean, what was about to happen was the most shocking and jarring and gut-wrenching thing they had ever experienced. And here's Jesus telling them about ahead of time. Why is that? It's because he wants them to know it's part of the plan. The idea is this. Yes, this crucifixion thing that you think is the worst thing that ever happened. It's the plan. It's the agenda. This is what God desires. It's intended. It's prophesied. And now it's being fulfilled. That's interesting. Why do we get the record of them all individually saying, surely not I, Lord, surely not I? Another question. I think perhaps one application for us, I'll move to application here and say, one application for us could be just the idea that, hey, um, you you can betray Christ too. I, I, know, I know you might be like Peter. Look, Lord, I would never, I would never, I would never. And you may feel that way. But when I say you could betray Christ, I'm not speaking about how messed up you are. I'm speaking about how weak you are. Like I too could fall away. I too can heap up sins to myself that distort my thinking that lead me into all kinds of messed up ac actions and attitudes that didn't turn into a betrayal of Christ, into hatred for Christ. Because, you know, when you love the things God hates, you tend to hate the, the God who hates those things, right? You, you tend to pick a side. And um, it could be me. It could be you. And there's that, there's that real awareness that we should, I think, have. But now let's talk about verse 20 and 21, where Jesus not only predicts Judas will betray him, but then he says this about him. Woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. These are This is the absolute strongest terminology to use about the fate of Judas. And, and the question I ask, and I don't know the right answer here, so I'm just going to talk to you about it. I, how literal does Jesus mean this? Does he like is it a figure of speech? Like, man, it'd be better if you'd never been born. Like if someone's like, man, my life is just, a, forgive the terms, guys, but these are the terms we hear today. My life is a living hell. What they mean, you know, they don't literally mean it. Like they don't literally mean it, but we all know what they mean when they say it. Was this a phrase that Jesus perhaps is saying? Like, it would have been better for you if you'd never been born. It's just everybody knows you don't literally mean it. Um, I don't know if that's the case. In the commentaries I read, I didn't see anybody suggesting that there was like, that phrase was in uh, extant literature, like, you know, stuff we have, you know, papyrus or something from the past where they would use the phrase, you know, frequently. So I don't know. Um, is, is, it, is it really that non-existence would be better than being Judas? 
I don't know. I don't know the right answer there. But it. But here's what I will say. It seems like this is definitely against universalism. Like there's many, many scriptures I would suggest are against universalism. This isn't because I don't like like Christians who are opposed to universalism are generally so because they believe it's true that universalism is false. It's not because they want it to be false, right? We all want everyone to be saved, including God. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. There's a desire there for salvation of all mankind. The question is, is, is all man going to be saved? And I think that at least Judas, if Jesus can say this about him, he has no future where at any point he's going to, it all gets better now and it was all worth it. Instead, Judas is just, he's, he's made his choices and now he's going to live with them. And to use these phrases seems against universalism to me. There's real consequences for what Judas does. Also, it seems to imply something against Judas's good intentions. Um, there are those who suggest, and understandably, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't attack you for this. Maybe this is your opinion, that think maybe Judas was trying to help Jesus somehow. Maybe Judas had like a positive motive. Um, maybe Judas thought, and, and here's the theory that's thrown out there often. Maybe Judas thought that Jesus needed a push in order for him to attack and destroy the Romans and become the, the, the physical global leader that Judas was expecting Jesus to be. That, in a sense, makes sense. Like you go, okay, well, I could see how those motives would be consistent with a first century Jew expecting the Messiah because they had all these misconceptions about what Jesus would do in his first coming. But there's several problems with that view. Uh, one of them is this right here. Jesus is like, woe to that man. I mean, if Judas had innocently done this to Christ, if he'd done this unintentionally, then I don't think that the the judgment would be so strict because intentions matter. Not just behaviors, but intentions. They also matter a lot, right? There's, there's something deliberate about what Judas is doing. And that's why I think Jesus's terms are so strong here. But also earlier on in Mark 14, we seem to get a hint at the motive of Judas. When the, the leaders are seeking to betray Jesus, we talked about this um, last week, and then the, the meal happens where Judas gets all, all upset because of the, he wants, he's stealing from the treasury we find from John and he wants the money from this oil being poured out and instead it's poured out on Jesus and the money's wasted in his mind and then he's rebuked publicly for it and he seems bitter and angry and upset. The next thing he does, he goes out and plots to kill Jesus, to betray Jesus into the hands of people who were trying to kill him. Notice he doesn't go to the Romans. He puts Jesus against the Jewish leaders. He's betraying him to the Jewish leaders who want to hand him over to the Romans. Of course, um, maybe Judas didn't realize they would actually crucify him. They just thought he, he just thought they would put him in prison or something. They didn't, he didn't realize how far it would go. That's possible because he shows some grief later. I've betrayed innocent blood. Um, we can talk later about that when we get to that passage. But I think that Judas didn't have good intentions and that we don't have any scripture supporting the idea that he did. And several ideas that suggest he didn't. Now, what lesson can we get out of that? Don't let, you, don't let yourself miss this. Jesus made it, chose it, so that one of his closest disciples who had done miracles in his name, who had preached the gospel, one of them ended up betraying him and stabbing him in the back, you know, symbolically speaking. I think that there's a lesson for us because in every generation we have Judases. We have people who 
They, they seemed to have right intentions. They seemed to have godly lives. They seemed to be serving the Lord well. And then later, they're betraying Christ. They're backstabbing Christianity. They're not just falling away and struggling with sin, but rather they're openly attacking the Christian faith they once proclaimed. They're openly um, trying to refute the gospel they once preached. I think every generation has these guys. The difference with the 21st century is these guys now have their own YouTube channels. And it seems to me that if you want to go from being a really minor Christian celebrity to being a much better known, you know, um, former Christian, that's the way to do it, right? Is you, you, you go out and you do all your, your deconstruction and your deconversion. You just start criticizing everything there is about Christianity that you can. Um, am I suggesting that all of their motives are, are, are intentionally wrong and wicked and stuff like that? No, no, I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm suggesting is the, the, the incident of a Judas, of a person who is seems so faithful and powerfully used by God to later be used to try to destroy Christ and destroy Christianity, that happens, and it shouldn't. It'll 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 disturb us, but it shouldn't surprise us. That's all I'm saying. Disturb you? Yes, appropriate. Do, should you still love those people? I mean, me, I would be praying for Judas up until after he committed suicide. Like, I want this guy to come back. I want him to know the truth of Christ. And I'd be trying to actively work against the destruction he's bringing. But we should be aware of it. There are tares in the wheat. There are false teachers. There are those who rise up from among us. And they become apostate. And now it's like you get minor celebrity status for doing it. And so um, so that's that's the world we live in. That's the world we live in. I don't think I feel threatened by that. I think I do want to interpret it through a biblical lens, though, and I want to recognize what's happening for what it is. This is part of that big spiritual battle where the gospel goes out into an ungodly world. All right, verse 22, which says, uh, while, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Now, this is the actual Passover meal, the Last Supper. This is that moment. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then we have this really, and we'll talk about this, this is really interesting. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Did you notice Jesus sang? We'll talk about that a little bit. All right. So what's going on here? Um. First thing you'll notice is it's after a blessing of some kind. After a blessing, he broke it, the bread. He like snapped the bread. This bread would be made without leaven. It's part of the Passover ceremony that the bread has no leaven or yeast. So it's going to be like a flat bread or even a hard bread, like a, like a, like matzah, like modern matzah, which is the traditional Passover food in the Jews use today. And so, um, uh, what did he do when he blessed it? What's the blessing? Now it's really common where Christians will bless their food or bless their meal. And we even use the term that we see here in the NASB, a blessing. But that can sometimes turn into the idea that you're sort of trying to, you're actually sort of doing something to the food. Like the food's not blessed and now the food is blessed. Like it's an, like an act, like almost like a sprinkle of holy water on it and a hoof, the food's blessed or something. Uh, but that's not really what's happening here. The blessing of the food is, is not anything that's done to the food, it's acknowledgement of the God who provided it. It's giving God credit for giving you your food. And Jesus did. He prayed over meals on a regular basis. He modeled this for us. I think that as Christians, uh, as I mean, as humans, we should be thanking God. I mean, obviously, everyone should be Christian, but we should be thanking God for 
the food that he provides, the clothes on our back, the, the air that we're breathing, we should be giving him credit for those things. That's what the blessing is really about. So R.T. France records for us like what was a, a normal Jewish blessing for the food. Again, that word blessing, you'll, you'll see how it doesn't, it's not about the food. It's about God. Here's, here's a typical Jewish blessing that they would say or thankfulness they would say. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. That's right. You you give you say, God, you're blessed. You are wonderful. You are awesome because you're the one that gave us bread. Yeah, we acknowledge it came from our farming. We acknowledge that we worked hard for it, but none of this would be possible without you. So everything we have, ultimately, we give you credit for it, Lord. And then they, they would give thanks for the cup in a similar manner. They would say something about God's creation of the fruit of the vine. The God's the creator of all. And so ultimately, he gets credit for all things. So it's about thanking God, not, not putting a blessing on the food. Now, if you have a habit as a Christian of blessing the food in the sense of like, God bless this food, you're not like, you don't need to repent, but just know that I don't really know what that is. <laughs> and, and you can, you know, and I've even found myself saying in the past saying things like, Lord, bless this food to our bodies. And, and I mean, I just don't know why I felt like I had to use the word bless in there. It's like just a tradition that we've, we've kind of, sometimes we just do things and we don't know why we're doing them, to be honest. And yeah, no, really the prayer over the food is about giving God credit for having provided for you and thanking him for it. That's just, that's it. It's also a nice opportunity when you stop and pray to think about other things to pray for. And uh, we often do that as well. So then he, he, after he blesses it, it says he broke it. He broke it and gave it to them. <clears throat> he says, take, this is my body. Take it, this is my body. Even, even in modern Jewish Passover celebrations, they'll break the bread. It's part of the ceremony, breaking of the bread. Um, but to my knowledge, in traditional Judaism, there's no explanation as to why they're breaking it. Jesus, he actually has an explanation. It's broken because his body's going to be broken for them. But he says, take it, this is my body. <clears throat> How literal am I supposed to take this? There is literally a debate, a theological discussion that is many, many generations long over the meaning of the word is right here. And um, it's true that when Bill Clinton was president, there was a very controversial um, court case he was involved in <laughs> during an impeachment process over the meaning of the word is. And it was pretty obvious he was playing games. But... Um, but yes, we've, we've, as Christians, we have our own discussion over the meaning of the word is here. This is my body. Now, in Roman Catholicism, they're not the only ones who teach this, okay? There's other people who say the same thing. But in Roman Catholicism, it's a very important doctrine. It's a very important dogma or teaching of the church that when, when a specific phrase is uttered over the bread, you're invoking the body of Christ and that bread becomes his physical body. Um, this, this is like, this gets into philosophical things because there's Aristotelian, if, if I remember correctly here off the top of my head, Aristotelian philosophy about accidents and substance. And so <clears throat> the accidents refers to the appearance. It still looks like bread. It has the outward appearance of bread, but it's actual substance. What it's really, what it really is, is the body of Jesus physically. And <clears throat> the, those, there are many Roman Catholics who would use this passage, take it, this is my body. And they would say, is means is. Jesus is like, this literally is my body. I'm going to push back on that. I'm going to suggest first off, this passage in Mark 14 has nothing to do with transubstantiation. That's the doctrine that it turns into the physical body of Christ and the, the wine turns into the physical blood of Christ. That has nothing to do with it. Like it's not even in the mind of the author. When, when, <clears throat> when Mark's writing it or when Jesus is saying it, it's not something they're dealing with. 
the word is could be taken in a number of ways here. Take it, this is my body. It could be literal, it could be figurative, it could be metaphor, it could be symbolism. The You can't answer this debate based on the meaning of the word is. It just can be used in different ways. But I'll offer several reasons why I think the Roman Catholic view doesn't work in this passage. Um, and I don't do this to criticize uh, or, you know, to, like personal attack people or anything like that. I, I just think that I care about what the Bible really teaches. And when someone has tradition that they're using to sort of force the Bible to be interpreted in the, in the wrong way, I like to talk about that. So here's a number of reasons. Uh, th these actually come, most of them come from James Brooks in his commentary on Mark 14, 22. He says first, um, in the Aramaic, and Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic here in Mark 14, 22, when he says, take it, this is my body. In the Aramaic, um, there is no verb, is. So in probably the language Jesus is standing with his disciples, he's most likely speaking in Aramaic right now in this particular setting. I think Jesus spoke Greek. I think he did. I think we have a good case for that. But... Aramaic would have been the first language, the primary language they were speaking back then. And a very literal translation of Aramaic would just be this, my body, this, my blood. That it's just the way the language works. You wouldn't have the word is to be talking about. The lack of the verb in Aramaic probably rules out that Jesus is, is saying this physically has become my body right now. Also, the fact that Jesus was physically present seems to push against that too. Um, in Roman Catholicism, right, when the priest utters the words of invocation, the bread, boom, becomes, right? This is a ritual by which, and I'm not going to call it magic because magic isn't the same thing as God performing a miracle. But they think that when the priest utters the words, that God responds by, boom, turning the bread into physical, uh, the physical flesh of Christ and then the wine into the blood of Christ. But Jesus is present and he has not yet been crucified. This is obviously weird to think that they're eating the physical body, and he hasn't even been crucified yet. The sacrifice hasn't even taken place yet. And so that seems very strange. Also, drinking blood. Drinking blood. Okay, nobody wants to drink human blood, all right? Unless you have something wrong with your brain. You do not want to drink human blood. And I really mean that. Like, get help if you want to drink human blood. <laughs> but to the Jews, it's way worse. It's incredibly offensive and a, a total violation of the law to be drinking the blood of of any animal, especially a human, right? This is, you do not do this. You just don't do this. And now could Jesus say, do it anyways. It's me. It's special. It's different. This isn't a violation of the law. It's, it's, it's the blood of the offering. He could if he wants, right? So I'm not saying he couldn't, but there's no pushback from the Jews. If they thought in their mind that Jesus was giving us his physical body and his literal blood to eat and drink right now, you would expect some dialogue in any of the gospels at the Passover meal where they're going to go, wait, Jesus, explain this to me because I feel like I'm violating the law, right? I feel like I'm violating the law. But yet even later on, Peter in the book of Acts, he boasts to God. He says, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. Yet you would have to say it's unclean according to the law to drink blood, eat flesh. So there's no pushback. There's no clarity offered. There's no like Jesus saying, no, 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 do it, do it, do it. And I know there's a debate on John 6. I strongly disagree with the uh, Roman Catholic interpretation of that chapter. I'm just not going to get into it for the sake of time today. But I'll say at least in Mark, you'd expect, in the Gospels, you'd expect pushback on this where Jesus is like, hey, eat this. Um, this is my body, if that's what he had meant. There's another issue here. Um, according to James Brooks, he says further, this is, I guess, our third or fourth point here. Um, the underlying Aramaic word probably means person rather than physical body. Um, and I'm going to have to just quote that and share it with you because I don't know the Aramaic and I haven't looked into it in more detail. 
an interesting point from James Brooks on the Aramaic word. But I'm going to add this. And and this is, uh, James says this as well, but I think this is the strongest reason to think that Jesus is not invoking the Roman Catholic transubstantiation right here. This is not happening here. And it's the nature of the meal. Jesus, let's, let's not forget, the context of this meal is not Roman Catholicism. The context of this meal is first century Judaism. It's the Passover meal. It's this deeply meaningful and metaphorical meal where each element of the food represents some reality of Israel's past. I'll give you some examples. The bread was made without leaven and the lack of leaven in the bread. They were not allowed to put leaven in the bread. They had to have no leaven in it. This was meant to remind them of how their Israel's, the, the, their Israel's, their ancestors, when they were uh, Israel in Egypt, that they were in such a hurry having Passover that they didn't have time to, to, to raise the bread, to leaven the, the food. So they, they were in a rush. They had to rush out. So it's to remind them of that moment. They would also eat bitter herbs. One of the things they would eat was bitter herbs. Um, so it could have been like horseradish or it could have been something like tart and nasty. I think most commonly Jews today, what they'll do is they'll take some sort of like uh, green leafy, leafy food and they'll dip it in salt water and then they'll eat it. Okay. That does not taste good. It's deliberately, intentionally a bad taste. And the reason for it, the symbolism, the metaphor is you're doing this because your fathers, when they were in Israel, when they were in Egypt, they suffered under bitter bondage from Pharaoh. They suffered under this slavery and this, this, this punishment and difficulty. They had bitter lives. And this is a reminder of that. So in the context of this, this is when Jesus says, <clears throat> this is my body. The context is you're at a meal where each item you're eating has symbolism about representing something. And Jesus at that meal, when they're about to tell people about the symbolism of everything they're eating, he gives them new symbolism. This is my body, the cup, this is my blood. I, the context, the Jewish context kind of rules out Roman Catholic transubstantiation. He's just saying, this is symbolism. It represents me. That's it. It's just, it's metaphor. It's symbolism. It's important. This doesn't mean it's not important. This doesn't mean it's not valuable. This doesn't mean it's not precious and wonderful and glorious. It just means it's not literal. So to me, this is like a really big, strong, strong point to suggest that we're reading tradition back into scripture instead of taking scripture in its own context. Um, now, the reason why Jesus takes the bread, I think, is to say, okay, just as I break this bread and hand it to you, my body's going to be broken for you. You're going to eat it and you're going to consume it because it's, it's my life is being brought into you. Just as you drink the cup, my life is being brought into you. You're partaking of my very life. So then Jesus goes on and there's a lot of, I think, guesswork that happens on the next thing Jesus says. Um, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The reason why I highlighted the word a cup is because there are many who will suggest that, um, that in the Passover celebration, which is very systematic now in modern Judaism, they'll have multiple cups. They'll have like four cups that you eat one at a time. You drink one at a time during the Passover celebration. One of them is like the cup of suffering. And then the debate will be, which one of these cups did Jesus pick up? And they'll be like, well, it was after the meal. So it was the third cup or it was the fourth cup. And they have different symbolism attached to the different cups. I'm, I'm not saying that's not true. I'm saying it's possible but here's what I've discovered is, you know, you study a little bit more. It's really hard to find out that in the first century, they had four cups. Modern Jews do this. And there were four cups 
Going back to ancient times, yes, but going back to Jesus's time, that's when it's kind of foggy. We don't really know exactly what the Passover celebration looked like in Jesus's time. We know some of the elements, the bitter herbs, the, the, the unleavened bread. We know some of the elements. We just don't know all of them. And later traditions might be getting read back into the text. So for me, I try not to assume too much. I try to stick to what scripture outlines as the Passover celebration. And all of the gospels, they don't say Jesus took a particular cup. It's like he just, he took a cup. It doesn't say the third cup, the fourth cup, the first cup. So none of that is hinted at in the text of the gospels. Which cup? Who knows? Who knows? But there were some specific habits. And let me let me read to you what we read about in the Mishnah um, in Pesachim 10, 4, and 5. That's chapter 10, verses 4 through 5. I'm going to read this to you. This is actually from the mission. So this is this is not scripture. These are Jewish writings that came much later, later even after the time of Jesus. But they outline some of the details because I want you to realize Passover is, as I've kind of already mentioned, is this very symbolic meal where each element represents different things they went through. And so this was at least a little time after Christ. This was their normal routine for Passover. They would have a family conversation and it would be the kids and the, and the, and the parents would have fun with it. And so the, the kid would, was supposed to ask questions if they're old enough and they go, they go, Hey, um, why are we eating bitter herbs? Why is the unleavened bread? And they would point to different things on the table and ask, and then it would give the dad a chance to say, Oh, we're doing it because of our ancestors. So this is actually instructed in the Mishnah. And I think that there's Something like this is going on in the time of Jesus, if it's not this exactly. And it connects to what Jesus is doing in some really neat ways. So let me just read to you. It's a little thick to read through the Mishnah here, but I'll read to you a, a few paragraphs. Um, here's the instructions for Passover. They mixed for him a second cup of wine, and here the son asks his father questions. But if the son has not got the intelligence to do so, the father teaches him to ask by pointing out. So hopefully the son can ask if he's not old enough that dad's like, why are we doing that? And then he answers for him. <clears throat> How different is this night from all other nights? This is the father speaking. For on all other nights, we eat leavened or unleavened bread. But on this night, all of the bread's unleavened. For on all other nights, we eat diverse vegetables. But on this night, only bitter herbs. For on all other nights, we eat meat, which is roasted, stewed, or boiled. But this night, all of the meat is roasted. For on all other nights, we dip our food one time. But on this night, two times. In accord with the intelligence of the son, the father instructs him. So play this out with your kid. Then he begins answering the questions with disgrace and concludes with glory. So he's supposed to talk about the bitterness of the past and then the hope of the future. Um, and explains this with the scriptures from a wandering Aramean was my father. I know that that sounded like gibberish to you just now. But what, what they're doing is the mission is quoting part of Deuteronomy 26 as a reminder of the father. You're going to use this passage of scripture when you talk to your family. So you can use Deuteronomy 26 verse 5 and continuing and you'll complete the entire section the Mishnah tells them. Keep in mind, this is this is a verification that they would remind people of sections of scripture, not with titles like Deuteronomy 26, but rather with the first phrase in the section. Just like Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's reminding his disciples of Psalm 22 because that's the first phrase in Psalm 22, which is really really neat. All right. Um, then as we continue, it, it says, uh, Rabban Gamaliel, and you guys have heard that name before. If you read the book of Acts, Rabban Gamaliel did state whoever has not referred to these three matters connected to the Passover has not fulfilled his obligation. And these three are, are they Passover, unleavened bread and bitter herbs Passover because the omnipresent passed over the houses of our forefathers, unleavened bread, because our forefathers were redeemed in Egypt, bitter herbs, because the Egyptians embittered the lives of our forefathers in Egypt. 
In every generation, a person is duty-bound to regard himself as if he personally has gone forth from Egypt. Since it is said, and you shall tell your son that in that day, saying, it's because of that which the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Therefore, we are duty-bound to thank, praise, glorify, honor, exult, extol, and bless him who did for our forefathers and for us all these miracles. He brought us forth from slavery to freedom from anguish to joy, from mourning to festival, darkness to great light, subjugation to redemption. So we should say before him, hallelujah. And then they would actually do, we'll get there in a second, they would actually re, uh, recount the, hall, the hallelujah psalms. There's a group of psalms that they would recount. Now, the context of this is Jesus takes this picture, the Passover, this meal about the deliverance of Israel from physical Egypt, and he uses it to give them a new symbolism about his delivering of them from their sin, taking them from mourning to festival, from darkness to great light, from anguish to joy, from slavery to freedom, right? This is, this is Jesus saying, here's all the symbols of your redemption. Now let me show you your true redemption in Christ. I am the broken body. I am the blood poured out. And you eat this now in remembrance of me, just as you had Passover as the, as the in, inauguration of the new nation. So you have this this Passover, me, Christ is our Passover now. You have him as the inauguration of the new people of God who are in Christ, redeemed and forgiven. And it's this is such an epic moment. Do you get it? Like the iconic Passover is all about Jesus. And here he comes. He's like, you can't, you can't betray me yet, Judas. I need to do this first. This, this is the this is the big reveal moment. And with our Gentile eyes, we read it and we just pass over and we pass over to pass over. We miss it. We don't get it sometimes. There's so much here. Jesus explains the new symbolism. Be beautiful. There's a new symbolism, a new covenant. There's a new people. It's all about Christ and it's all about us being in him. So then of the wine, of the wine, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Remember the son of man is the one who's going to be betrayed. Let me talk more about the symbolism. I haven't uh, given you too much to think about yet. Uh, but Jesus, he's the son of man. And he talks about his blood and how this is going to be poured out for many. So this is the reverse of Adam in the garden. Adam in the garden, he goes to the tree and partakes of the fruit. And we all fall. He fall. He, his fall is the fall of many. And then the consequence is death. Well, Jesus takes the death consequence and he pours his blood out. And this is for the many. So we have this, this contrast between Adam and Jesus. This is why I think... One of the reasons why son of man is one of the favorite things Jesus has for describing himself. Jesus is the son of man because Jesus represents all of mankind, right? It's his humanity is us, is him representing all of us, him standing in on our behalf, representing every one of us. Like David going out to fight Goliath, there he, fate, he, he represents all of Israel, one man. You know, Jesus goes out, but he's not going to fight. He's going to die. He's going to pour his blood out for us. He also calls it the blood of the covenant. Now that is heavy language. This is so heavy language. They are, Passover is a reminder of the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. This was the covenant. Passover brought them right to the mountain and then there they get the new covenant. Sorry, someone's trying to call me. Not a good time. <laughs> and there they get the new covenant and this is the, the law of Moses. So let me talk a little bit about the nature of a covenant. Um, I, now I've heard pastors talk about covenants before and Sometimes they talk for so long, you don't know what a covenant is anymore. So here's like a simplistic description of a covenant. It's like a binding contractual promise between two parties. Okay. Like it's, it's like, you don't break this. 
This is a promise. It's a contractual kind of promise. And typically covenants back then, especially in the Old Testament, they were there was a sacrifice of, of an animal. And then the blood of the animal was kind of like the... the Kind of like signing the contract. You know, if like you could hold up a contract, be like, you signed this. Like you could point to the death of the animal as like that solidified this thing. Well, Jesus, he offers no animal. He offers his blood. My blood is the guarantee of the covenant. My promise to you is guaranteed in my own blood. This should remind you of the grace and forgiveness you have with Christ. That the promise of his grace and his kindness to you is this. If you're in Christ, you are forgiven. End of story. There isn't a piece of forgiveness and you got to work really hard to try to earn the rest. You're just washed by his sacrifice. You're cleansed through him. Beautiful, wonderful truth. But in um, in the mind of the Israelites, they're thinking about Passover. Remember, this is not, a, not an accident that he's saying this during this Passover meal. This is what happened around that time. In Exodus 24, verse 8, they, their first covenant... This is, this is the blood of the covenant. This language only occurs a couple times in the Old Testament. This is one of the places. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, if you read the context of Exodus 24, again, it's too much to get into today. But the context is this. Here's the laws. You're going to obey them and you'll be blessed or you'll disobey and you'll be cursed. And this is the covenant they're under right now. But Jesus comes and he offers us a new covenant, a different covenant. It's not going to be your obedience. It's not going to be your good works. It's going to be him sacrificing to forgive you. And you just enter in by grace. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Now there's another place where we get the idea of a covenant, of a new covenant coming. It, see, Jesus doesn't just come out of nowhere and hijack the Old Testament. I'm going to make a new covenant, you know. Rather, is actually the scripture, the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, that tells us there's going to be a future covenant. So this is another passage that I think the Jews would have naturally thought of when Jesus starts using this covenant language here at Passover. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he makes a distinction. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. Okay, so it's not like that first covenant we read about, Exodus. My covenant, which they broke, although I was hus a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant which I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it. Um, and in their heart, I will write it. That's one thing. And I will be their God and they will be my people. This is relational. So one is about an internal change. His law is written in our hearts, so he changes us from the inside out. Not just rules that we learn, but rather a, a, a relational transformation that takes place. The second thing is um, the law is written in us and also a relationship with God. They will not teach each man his neighbor saying, uh, and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, right? For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. They, that's the second thing, relation. And then for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now under the old law, there's so much Old Testament I could just try to cram in here, but under the Old Testament law, there was only a, so many sins you could be forgiven of. But here, the new covenant is just blanket forgiveness for every sin. So the grace of Christ, the grace of God to forgive all and anything. That's what we're getting here. The, the new covenant has three elements. An internal transformation, right? Because we're going to get the Holy Spirit. And he's going to write his law. He's going to Now we're, our job is to walk in the Spirit. He changes us from the inside out. And when you come to Christ, you get the Holy Spirit. And he starts working on you to transform you. You also have this knowledge of God intimately because he's in you. You will know, at least to the greatest, we all know God. We're all children of God. We cry, Abba, Father. And then the forgiveness of our sin. This is, this is so New Testament theology. 
except it's Old Testament. And this is what Jesus is giving us when he's like, here's the new covenant in my blood, right? This is what some of the other gospels record Jesus actually saying at the meal, new covenant in my blood, not just the covenant in my blood. I think that's really, really neat. But I will point out one difference, one difference, which is in the Old Testament, when God talks about the the the, the blood of the covenant, he'll even use the phrase, uh, the blood of my covenant. Yet here in Mark, Jesus says, my blood of the covenant. And that's the big difference. That's the big transformation is right. It's God's own blood. It's, it's his own blood that he uses to purchase us. So just exciting stuff. I can't wait to get to the book of Hebrews, which we'll be doing after the gospel of Mark. We're going to going through that in detail, getting all the theology. All right. So there's another allusion to the old Testament that I want to mention right here. And it's in Zechariah nine 11, Jesus's words where he, where, um, I kind of spoiled it a little bit, but where he talks about the, my blood of the covenant versus, um, the blood of my covenant, right? Which is Zechariah nine 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I've set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is a really interesting, um, Illusion. This is clearly Zechariah nine eleven that Jesus is alluding to with this phrase, the blood of the blood of the covenant. This is this is this is the passage Jesus is alluding to. Now, what's really interesting is if you zoom back just a couple verses, Zechariah nine nine, and you'll see the context, the inter, the deliberate interweaving of the Old and New Testament that has been planned from before time is taking place here. Zechariah nine nine. You know this verse. Rejoice so greatly. Uh, greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Actually, Jesus' name means God is salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. That's the triumphal entry. This has just happened. Like it happened just days before. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. That's the Gentiles. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Speaking of the final kingdom of Christ, that's still on its way. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I've set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This, they didn't realize, was ultimately about Christ and this moment where he pulls up the cup and he said, this is my blood of the covenant. But there's more. <laughs> there's more. There's actually more Old Testament like layers going on here. Jesus uses the phrase in Mark 14, poured out for many, my, the blood of my, the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he's used this phrase about how he will die for the sins of many. He will be a ransom for many. He's used these terms in the gospel of Mark already. And previously I've showed why that is referenced to Isaiah 53, but let's just look at the passage in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, verse 11. Such neat stuff. As a result of the anguish of his soul. Now, <laughs> Sorry, if you don't know, Isaiah 53 is like the passage about the cross of Christ and the meaning of the cross of Christ, written hundreds of years before Christ showed up. And I have teaching on it. It's absolutely amazing. But here's the section we'll deal with today. As a result of the anguish of his soul, that's Jesus' anguish, and he's about to experience that anguish, right? In the garden, he goes through it. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will what? Justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. That is, he's going to carry, he's going to, bear their sins upon himself. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He'll divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death. Jesus says, this is my blood poured out for the many. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is Jesus alluding to Isaiah 53. Why is this neat? Well, there are many ways in which this is neat, but let me mention one. 
Liberal theologians often want to act like the idea that Jesus died for our sins is a later idea being pushed on scripture. The idea that Jesus died like for the, to suffer the penalty for the things I've done and you've done, that this is like something that comes a thousand years after Christ. Like this is Anselm made this up or Calvin with his lawyerly mind made this up. But here's Jesus saying it in Mark before the cross has even happened. And he's telling us, this is my blood. I am the sacrifice who's bringing in the new covenant where you get relationship with God, inner transformation by the spirit, where you get to, to, to be forgiven for all your sins through what? Through the Isaiah 53 sacrifice of the one who will die for the many, of the one who will suffer for the sins of the many, of the one who will be the sacrifice for the many. Um, I like what uh, J. Jeremiah says about this. One commentary says about Mark here, Mark chapter 14. He says that if you ignore Isaiah 53, you can't even make sense of what Jesus is saying in Mark 14. Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. So this is, again, the new covenant instituted by Christ. Um, and and there's, there's more. There's, there's more. We're not done yet. But I'm going to move as quick as I can here because for the sake of time. Um, so with Passover, there is, long story short, because I have my whole teaching on it, which again, I'll link below. But Passover is where there's a perfect spotless lamb and he dies instead of you. But not only that, not only does he die instead of you, he actually dies instead of your firstborn son. Now, Passover is a national sacrifice, which means that in Passover, there is a substitute that has to be perfect, that dies, that has to actually be a firstborn, that has to die instead of the firstborn of Israel collectively. Now, this gets really exciting when you study Isaiah in detail, because, and I'm just going to throw this at you, I don't know, it might be a lot to take in. But Isaiah has these things called the servant songs of Isaiah. We looked at the last one. Isaiah 53 is the fourth and final servant song. But there are multiple servant songs, four of them in Isaiah. And the first servant song sounds like it's about Israel. The next servant song, kind of about Israel. The next servant song starts to make it clear it's not about Israel. It's about one person in Israel. And then finally, the final servant song, Isaiah 53, it's one person in Israel that represents all of Israel and that does so because they've all sinned and he bears their sin and he dies for their sin so they can be forgiven. So here we have, combine this with Passover because that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking Isaiah 53 and he's combining it with Passover pictures and ideas. Jesus, he is the son who represents the collective son of Israel, firstborn of Israel, the ultimate son of God, the one who stands to represent all of them so that judgment will pass over them. And they can be brought not into the old covenant, which is the law of obedience for salvation, but the new covenant, which is about grace and internal transformation and relationship with God and forgiveness for all your sins. And it's just what we're getting here is threads from all over the place coming together in this moment where Jesus picks up the bread and breaks it and says, this is my body, takes up the cup and he says, this is my blood. This is the blood of my covenant. This is, this is a powerful, powerful aha moment for us. The more we understand the scripture, the more we understand it. All right. So um, let's, uh, let's look at verse 25. And I want to ask this question. Um, has verse 25 been fulfilled yet in Mark 14? Jesus says, truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'm never going to drink it again until I drink it in the kingdom. Now, has this already happened? Now, there's a debate on this, and I don't know the right answer. I'm, well, I'll give you my, my best guess. But some would say Jesus has not drinking of the vine again because there's these places in Revelation that talk about like the banquet 
right? The, the marriage supper of the lamb. And this is definitely in the kingdom. And it's like the fully consummated kingdom of God. Like, man, we're in his presence where he's, he's returned. He set up his kingdom, heaven and earth are meeting. Like this is definitely, he's drinking of the fruit of the vine in this context, in that point. Others would say, yeah, but after Jesus rose from the dead, he drank wine with the disciples. It seems he did anyways. He had food with them. He had food and drink with them. And partly this was to prove that he had physically raised and he was not a ghost. He was not an apparition. He was giving them many, what, what uh, the scripture calls many infallible proofs that he'd actually physically risen from the grave. And so, yeah, there, that's going on there. He, he's eaten there too. So some would say he already has eaten in the kingdom. But I think maybe the answer is to, to know the nature of God's kingdom temporarily right now, the nature of God's kingdom is that it's sort of, it's sort of like in secret, um, not in secret, but I should say it's, it's personalized, it's individual, and it's not global. What I mean by that is not that I'm not globally connected to all other Christians in the body. What I mean is he's not governmentally reigning on earth. He's reigning individually in the lives of people. We're all part of a family, but we're living in a world that is not in submission to the Lordship of Christ. So his kingdom hasn't come to the globe but it's come individually to you. It's come to me. It's come to those who put their faith in Christ. So there's a yes sense in which the kingdom has already come, but there's another no sense in which the kingdom has not yet come. That's when the global, awesome, glorious kingdom where Christ is ruling and reigning um, on the earth. And so it's like yes and no. He, he has and he hasn't. I think the answer is kind of mixed and um, you might think I'm cheating. And maybe you're right, but I think that I think it fits. Um, but check out how weird this would be for the disciples. They think the drinking of the vine in the kingdom is Jesus destroying the Romans and setting up Jerusalem as the center of the earth. And they think that's going to happen in his first coming. So this would, would have created such confusion for them because he's like, I'm going to be betrayed. The son of man is going to be crucified. And the next thing he's like, next time I drink this cup, it's going to be in the kingdom. So wait, is it all about to happen or is it all going to fall apart? And it just shows you their confusion that they didn't know what to expect. And they really had a hard time ex accepting suffering until they saw Christ, dead, risen again, and then they accepted suffering as we should too. Big lesson for us to learn there. Um, now verse 26, our, our last verse for today. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And I wish I could hear this. Jesus sang a hymn. I mean, it probably didn't sound like some American Idol amazing song. It probably sounded like, um, like Jewish guys who are not like educated, skilled singers with perfect vibrato. They probably sound like a bunch of Jewish guys singing some sort of stock type. They would often take like a, a, a melody and they would just add that to whatever psalm they were singing at the time. So you might have the same melody you sing over 20, 30 different psalms. Um, so I'm guessing it probably was like that. But this group of Jewish men sang a hymn. I wish I could hear this. It'd be exciting. Uh, I don't know if maybe we'll get to hear Jesus sing and lead us in singing. I, I don't know, maybe I'm just dreaming here, but that would be pretty amazing one day. Um, I don't care if he has a good voice. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. It's just the very idea. But um, what were they singing? What hymn was it? Well, there's a, there's a good chance that we do, we can narrow it down. We don't know for sure, but it was probably Psalm 115, 116, 117, or 118. Why do we say this? Because it is Jewish tradition that they sing a certain group of psalms at Passover. They sing Psalms 113 and 114 before the meal. And after the meal, they sing 115 through 118. There's a singing or a reciting of these psalms. And you can look at all these psalms and there's a sense in which they can be seen as prophetic. So we're going to look at them now. And this will be how we close. Psalm 116. 
let's just read through it very quickly. I'll read through it and just point out a couple things. But mostly I want you to be thinking about how this pictures Christ and what he has done for us. I love the Lord. And keep in mind, he's saying this literally as he's about to head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's about to be betrayed. As he's about to go to the cross. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. The cords of death encompassed me and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. I think this feels like the garden and the cross. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Jesus was brought pretty low into the grave. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation. And it's just ironic that Jesus shows us what that cup of salvation is going to be as his blood poured out. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, precious, and then just out of nowhere, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And how much more true this is of Christ. How precious in in the sight of the Lord is the death of Christ. So precious that it purchases salvation for all of us. Oh Lord, surely I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your handmaid. You have loosed my bonds. And I mean, Jesus here, of course, being the son of man, he really does come. He's he's the son of Mary. To you, I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. This is about fulfilling your promises to God. And Jesus fulfills that in in going to the cross. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of, of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So this, this could have been the song that they sang. It's about deliverance from death, restoration, hope and despair, um, the cup of salvation. Um, Psalm 117 is real short. You could just read it right there. It's just about praising God for his loving kindness. Um, and all nations, includes the Gentiles, includes the Gentiles. Everybody in the world is supposed to praise God because of his loving kindness that's great towards us. This is the cross. I mean, is it not? But then Psalm 118, which is kind of long, <clears throat> we're just going to look at verses 29 through 39. This is the third psalm that they would have sung at that point or I should say uh, fourth. And uh, Psalm 118, starting in verse 19, you will recognize this because it again just happened. Just like Zechariah, Jesus alludes to Zechariah. That allusion is right after the uh, triumphal entry is predicted. And then it talks about his his sacrifice now and, and his covenant in the cup that he's going to pour out his blood. So Psalm 118 does the same thing, talks about the triumphal entry and then talks about the, the coming crucifixion of Christ. So here it says, and this is, this is very likely, if you had to guess, this is most likely, this is what they sang before they go out to the garden because it's the final song of the night uh, according to their Jewish traditions. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I mean, Jesus present himself as the gate. Maybe there's an allusion here to Jesus being the gate and we're righteous because we enter through him. I shall give thanks to you for you've answered me. You've become my salvation. And this is, I mean, Jesus, literally his name means God is salvation. But in Christ, God literally comes, becomes human and becomes our salvation. So his his name and the connection to the text here is just really neat. Then we read on. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And again, the builders are about to reject Jesus. And he's going to become the chief cornerstone. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, Lord, do save. This is where we get Hosanna. Save now, Hosanna. Do save, we beseech you. Oh, Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they said to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world and he has been given for us. And then out of nowhere, just like in the last Psalm, out of nowhere, this, this phrase, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. The festival sacrifice. So Passover is a festival of Israel, one of the feast days of Israel. They don't happen all the time. There are certain festival sacrifices that need to be brought. Well, Jesus is 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 pictured here as the Passover lamb, you know, bind them to the horns of the altar. This is the where the where the sacrifices take place. The celebration is God's given us light. He's bringing us salvation. He's he's delivering us. He's he's saving us. And it centers around this random but essential thing. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is our sacrifice. Yes. Yes, take him to the cross. Yes, as much as it hurts. Yes, as sad as it is. It is glorious. It is beautiful. It, he is our light. Then it goes on. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Now, imagine Jesus and the disciples singing these words. Did, did, how did Jesus sing these words about binding the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar, knowing it was him who was about to be sacrificed? Um, wow. Wow. Just wow. So then they, then they go out to the Mount of Olives and this is, okay, so in Jerusalem, you've got Jerusalem here. It's kind of a city on a hill, so to speak. It's all, it's all mountain range there. Then down a, a short valley and then up again, next to Jerusalem, you have this, this, this slope where the Mount of Olives is, where they have like olive gardens and things like that going on. They're growing olives there. This is where Jesus is going to stay overnight. They're probably not going to go further. The plan is to be here because Jesus uh, is, they're not supposed to leave the greater Jerusalem area on this evening of Passover. And so they're not going to go back to Bethany, which is over the hill. It's a little too far. It's outside the region. So they're going to stay here. Judas probably knows they're going to stay here. This is why Judas goes on his own to betray Jesus and then to get the people and bring them to the prearranged meeting place. Jesus hid from the betrayal of Judas so he could do the Passover meal. So all the symbolism and power and meaning could be embedded into the gospel. So we know it's not just about believing in Jesus. It's understanding what he's done for us. And, um, and then he goes out to the garden where he knows he's going to meet his fate. And we'll get there next week. That'll be next week. So looking forward to digging into it with you guys. Uh, thanks for joining me for this extra long Bible study. But it had to be because it's just such an amazing passage. And there's so many layers here. And again, we're just... We're just dancing around all the beauty that's here. There's still more to find. And I, I pray that you're, the more you study the Bible, the more excited you'll be about the Bible, the more interested you'll be in it. As you understand, if you ever thought the Bible was, was dumb or boring, it's just that we were being ignorant about its beauty. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You, you are the sacrifice for us. It is your body that we that we t we partake of. It is your blood that we partake of, and that that symbolism represents your very sacrifice for us. You're the one who died for the many. You're the the one righteous who died for the wicked, Lord. And we're grateful. We love you. We bless your name. We don't take for granted your sacrifice, but we still rejoice even in the cross. We take joy in your 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 suffering, Lord. Not that we delight in pain, but we we delight in your love for us, in that you went through that to save us. 
And we pray only, Lord, that you'd help us to have the realization the disciples had after all this, that suffering for you is a glorious calling. And may we, um, may we be a people who are willing to face our own cross and to follow you, knowing the joy that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.